Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. I have been thinking about Thanksgiving and I've decided that my prayer for myself and that I'm going to pray it for you too is that I would be able to enjoy these next weeks, Thanksgiving and Christmas and all that comes in between and not just endure them because I I can get this tendency to just power through and make it happen and nobody gets to have any fun. And that's not that's not celebration. And so I want to celebrate gratitude and celebrate Jesus coming. And so I encourage you in that too. Several times this last week, I was driving past a church that I pass on the way home from my boys' school. And their marquee says, it kind of flashes, it's one of those electronic ones. So it says something different all the time. But twice when I passed it, it said, gratitude takes what you have and makes it enough. And the first time I thought, oh, that's sweet. Cool. And I kept driving and it, you know, like I probably means about my material possessions and I have plenty of food. I have a nice house. I have plenty of clothes. I feel really content with my material things. And then more talk about Thanksgiving and what our plans for the weekend and family dynamics and this old nervous energy starts to creep up and it just feels like it's here and it won't let me stay at rest and stay settled and I'm starting to kind of enjoy the taste of the bitterness that's coming into my spirit because I have every right to be bitter. Things are not the way that I hoped they would be at this point in my life and in our family dynamics and so I should get to just sit in this and do this kind of ungrateful, bitter thing. And the Holy Spirit, that two-edged sword, the Word of God came and just judged those selfish thoughts and put laid that, that statement, gratitude takes what you have and makes it enough. And he just laid those words over the top of all of that unsettledness. And I just do this when I feel like something isn't at rest in my spirit. It just feels like it's flying right here and nothing else can get in my ears. And he just laid that over the top. Are you grateful for what you do have? I don't have relationship with my brother anymore. I thought I could say that without going here, but maybe not. But I have a lot of years of really great memories. So can I sit in the gratitude of that? Can I be grateful for what I do have in different family members? It's not what I maybe imagined it would be as a girl. Having in-laws is different than what I imagined it would be. But am I grateful that they want to be with us and that we get to be together and that my kids love, love, love the memories that they get to make? So when I look through the lens of gratitude, it allows what I have in front of me to be enough. That has nothing to do with Hebrews chapter 7, really, except that gratitude is totally scriptural. But that's just kind of what, what God has been doing on my heart this week. So it could apply to this morning, too. If you if we go through this morning and you think, she did not tell me anything I have not heard before, then you just take what you have and it's enough. <laughs> so there we go. 
get to get into Hebrews 7, and this is the part where we finally get to talk about Melchizedek. And he's been alluding to who is this guy over and over, and we get to dig in and say this is this is who he is. So Hebrews 7, starting at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So I told you last time that I'm a big context person. So when I see something that's about another story in the Bible, we have to go back and look at that other story in the Bible. So we're going to go back to figure out where we are in the biblical narrative. Abraham's story starts in Genesis 11 when he was still Abram. And his father, Terah, took his family from Ur of the Chaldeans and they headed out toward Canaan. Did you know they were actually going to Canaan? It says in Genesis 11. But they settled... In Haran, I'm guessing is how it's pronounced, or Haran, or however you want to say it. They settled in Haran instead. And I just, that word settled was made an impression on me. That they were headed toward a place that they didn't even know was God's promised land yet. But they knew that's where they were headed, and they settled somewhere else. I do that sometimes. So after Terah died, the Lord then spoke this to Abram, which I think is just another, hmm... Many times we, we don't want to rock the boat in our families and especially with parents who are firm in their ways and you see people, I have known people, I have been people who have waited to make a certain decision until someone else is settled or ready for me or out of the picture, right? Instead of just doing what it is that God has directed me to do, not in a belligerent, I don't care what you think sort of way, but in a, if, if God is teaching me this and leading me here, then I can lovingly tell you, this is, this is where I believe the Lord is leading me and not have to wait for that person who, who I should honor and respect, but that I could do what God is asking me to do. So after Terah died, the Lord spoke to Abram and he said, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram and Sarai, that's how you say it in Espanol. I don't know if that's how Hebrews say it, but that's how I'm going to say it. And their nephew Lot and his family and all their possessions, they go out on this journey. And they have to do a detour because there's famine in the land and they end up in Egypt because they need to feed. They have this huge following and a lot of cattle and sheep and whatever kind of flock they have. And this is the story that you've read where Abram lies to Pharaoh about his wife and says, oh, that's my sister. And they get on all kinds of trouble and they get kicked out of there and they end up back in Canaan and then they split up because there's already people in Canaan inhabiting different areas and kings and they have all of this land already kind of portioned off but they split up Abram says you know you pick the land to lot and you take whatever you want and I'll go the other way and so they have their space and then the kings in and around that area are in a huge fight there, this king, and I'm going to butcher his name, Ketolaumer. 
Is that all right? Um, he has been overseeing, kind of, they've been under his, he's kind of been the the main king, I guess, and they're stuck under his, what's the word I'm looking for right here? brain yeah but I mean like he's oppressing them too whatever that that word is you can get the idea but they've been under his thumb for 13 years it says for 12 years he was they were trying to get out from his rule and they finally go to battle against him so he's got four kings him and three others allied with him and there's five other kings that are going to fight and the four kings win and they take the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, which included Lot. That's where he had settled, near there. And they take him off and run off into another place. Well, a messenger comes and hears, tells Abram that this has happened. And Abram's like, no, you don't get to take my nephew. And up to this point, it hasn't talked at all about Abram using any force in the land of Canaan. It's not like when the Israelites went back after Egypt and they were killing everybody that they came across. Like Abram and Lot just came into the land and settled, right? But then it says that this messenger comes and tells Abram that, you know, these kings have fought and these guys have won and they've taken everybody from Sodom and Gomorrah, even Lot and all of his possessions. And Abram says, nope, not on my watch. And he brings out his 318 trained men like I'm I have a new picture of Abram all of a sudden he's like a drug lord minus the drugs like he can at any moment he can call out his trained men and go and fight these guys and feel like I can do this like if I you know if my sister got taken away I would be all up in arms but I don't have anybody to come and help me fight the battle right like he's not just all talk he's got he's got huge, vast possessions and a huge following of people, including 318 trained men to go and get Lot back. So he goes and he defeats Ketolomer and the other three kings that he's allied with, and which is something these other kings hadn't been able to do for 13 years, right? So this is pretty special. And when he returns, we get to meet Melchizedek. The Hebrew translation of his name is, my king is right. I like that. Did I just say Melchizedek? No? Did I say it correctly? Okay. It felt like there was a ch in my head. So, here's Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. There are a lot of really cool things to me in those three verses. First of all, This is the introduction of bread and wine being offered in the Bible. And how cool that this came from Melchizedek, priest of God Most High, to Abraham, the father of the Israelites and God's chosen people, but also, God said, the father of us all. It's significant to me that the introduction of bread and wine, which Jesus then refers to himself as, didn't come through Abraham's offspring, It came from a priest of the Most High God, not of that line, to Abraham to share with the whole world. Feels significant. Feels like, you know, so like Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
to have this little foreshadowing that seems rather insignificant, like bread and wine is just something you eat and drink. But that this became a symbol and an emblem, even for us now, down through the generations. It feels significant that it was given to Abraham and then shared through his offspring. Also significant that he's a priest of God Most High, and we don't hear a lot about God interacting with very many different individuals. This was before God's chosen people existed, right? Because that came later through Jacob and his sons. The children of Israel became known as God's chosen people. But this is where Abraham, God has promised Abraham something, but he's also having a relationship with Melchizedek. And we have no idea how many other people there could be. I'm just speculating that there could have been. God created all of us, right? And so he could have had interactions that aren't even written about of people who knew him and loved him and heard from him. Um, But we get to hear about Mel. Yeah, sorry. Um, But also then that Melchizedek recognized that Abram had the spirit of God within him. That's something that I'm noticing more and more as I grow up and mature in faith. And it's not, I don't want you to hear that I'm judging who's saved and who's not saved. That's not what I mean. But when you meet someone, there's a certain sense sometimes that you haven't even had any sort of spiritual conversation, but you can tell from their spirit that they know Jesus or you assume that they do. And then oftentimes it'll turn up that you do get to have a conversation that ends up being that, Oh, I go to church with this so-and-so and you end up knowing the same people. And you know, it's a small world after all. And I love those moments because it kind of verifies the spirit in me or something. I don't know if that's the right word, but it just gives a little validation that, that I am in you and I am also in this person. And so the spirit of God craves itself right that that unity of the trinity wants to interact and so when we meet someone who has the spirit then we can sense that because it's actually our spirit interacting with the spirit of god in them and so melchizedek saw this in abraham he knew that it was the spirit of god he had seen mere men trying to fight against these kings and they couldn't do it And clearly God had done this through Abraham. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He didn't come up and say, wow, you were awesome. Those 318 trained men, man, what do they do to work out? He didn't give the credit to the man and what he had done. He saw that it was God's doing and that he had clearly accomplished this great thing. And it's just a good reminder to me to look at what God did and not just praise the people, the man, the humans who do it. Because we so often want a pat on the back or to give a pat on the back. And what if every good thing we truly gave the glory to God? That would be something. I found in my cross-referencing this passage from Romans 4, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. You don't need faith if you can get to the inheritance through the law, right? For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith 
in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Going on in Hebrews 7, verse 3 says this, we're talking about Melchizedek again, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest perpetually over and over always. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. So now we see that Abraham is going to give his tithe, his tenth, to this priest of the Most High God. Now there is some debate, and if you looked into it at all, you saw some debate on what this, what Melchizedek is really all about. Is it actually Jesus appearing before he came to earth or is it just supposed to be a picture of Christ or what what actually is going on here um, as I kind of looked into what some commentators say I came across this author who has a really great um, whole article that you can look up seriously if you put in the name Melchizedek you're going to find it I didn't look that hard but one of the paragraphs in her article is this and I think it's profound it's on your Marsha put it on your outline too, so it's right there in front of you. We can't get so wrapped up in the stories of our individual lives only to find we have lost sight of the big story, the meta-narrative tale that God is weaving. Melchizedek is but a thread in the story that tells of the salvation of souls through Christ, and that thread highlights a more complete view of our glorious Savior. Melchizedek is important. Any glimpse in scripture which offers a more complete view of Jesus is beauty and truth that we cannot set aside. He is the perfect one, the ancient of days, the priest forever. And we're going to watch a little video that, again, you may have found. I thought it was obscure. It was embedded in this article, and then I Googled it later, and it's the very first video that pops up. So you've probably already seen it, but we're going to watch it again because I think it's a good explanation.
wasn't going to ex be able to explain that better than him, so I thought I'd just let you watch him. Does that make sense? Good. All right. We are here. Hebrews 7, verse 5, And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, Melchizedek, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises, Abraham. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. I chuckle at that one because it's like when my kids want to act like they've been someplace that we went before they were born. Well, we were there. We were just in your tummy or whatever. <laughs> okay, fine. But this is kind of what it's saying that, you know, Levi was really inside Abraham because he was still generations later going to be offspring. So the Levites collected a tithe from the rest of the Israelites. God ordered this. And then they gave a tithe, a tenth of what they collected back to the Lord. They were also to collect the first fruits or firstborn of every living thing, including human children. These all had to be redeemed. Numbers 18 shows us this. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. He's talking to the Levites. Every first issue of the womb of all flesh, whether man or animal, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem. And the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. As to their redemption price, from a month old you shall redeem them by your valuation, five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras just in case they didn't know their exchange. Um, as Stuart pointed out in the book of Luke several weeks ago, I thought this was just a new light bulb for me. I hadn't ever thought about this or heard this before. There's no record of Mary and Joseph ever paying that redemption price for Jesus. He was their firstborn son, and they offered the proper sacrifice for him when they went to the temple, but they didn't pay the price to redeem him, to keep him as their son. Hannah had done that with Samuel and literally gave him back to the priesthood. He was not of the, of the Levite. He shouldn't have been a priest from the tribe he was from, but she gave him back because he was her firstborn. Joseph and Mary didn't pay that price. So he, Jesus, was God's given back as a priest already and so he's he's not of the line of the priesthood he's from the tribe of judah right and then nothing was ever said about them becoming priests except that every firstborn was to be given to the priesthood i think that's really cool he is our high priest and there's so many ways that they that god has validated that idea in his word i liked the way the message kind of rewrote this part of the passage for us to help me understand it in a different way. If the priesthood of Levi and Aaron, which provided the framework for the giving of the law, could really make people perfect, there wouldn't have been need for a new priesthood like that of Melchizedek. But since it didn't get the job done, there was a change of priesthood, which brought with it a radical new kind of law. 
There is no way of understanding this in terms of the old Levitical priesthood, which is why there is nothing in Jesus' family tree connecting him with that priestly line. But the Melchizedek story provides a perfect analogy. Jesus, a priest like Melchizedek, not by genealogical descent, but by the sheer force of resurrection life. He lives, priest forever, in the royal order of Melchizedek. The former way of doing things, a system of commandments that never worked out the way it was supposed to, was set aside. The law brought nothing to maturity. Another way, Jesus, a way that does work, that brings us right into the presence of God, is put in its place. And then I switched back to the New American Standard. Hebrews 7, starting at verse 20, "...in inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for indeed they became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The Lord keeps his word." He keeps his word when he just whispers it. But when he takes an oath, that's his confirmation, guarantee, this is happening, right? If Jesus is my guarantee, then I can be at rest. I thought I was being really, really smart when my son started kindergarten. I got him a $14 backpack at Ross. Maybe it was 11 It was cheap. And it looked cheap. And it fell apart really quickly. And all of my, haha, I can beat everyone and get my kids' backpacks at Ross, fell apart, literally, in the first couple of weeks. And so after, I think it was actually still in the middle of kindergarten, I went to Target, because, you know, that's a lot better. Target, if you will. And found a, a more expensive backpack. It was probably 20 bucks, But it said that it had a three-year warranty. And I was like, well, that's what I want then because, like, usually things that are warrantied don't fall apart because they don't want to deal with you having, like, they fall apart the fourth year, right? Like, I don't need it to last that long. It's got dinosaurs on it. He won't want that by fifth grade anyway. But if we can do this for a few years, that'll be great. So I bought the backpack, but I didn't do anything about sending in the warranty because that's work. And I don't like to do that. Well, he's had the backpack for just a little over a year, and the inside is ripping out. If there's a seamstress in here that could sew, like, plastic back onto cloth without, I don't understand. Duct tape isn't working. But the point is, I rarely take advantage of warranties because they take work on my part. And it feels harder than just going and buying a new thing to me. But Jesus is our guarantee, and he already did all the work. He already paid the price. He is the guarantee of our salvation. And that's why, like Stuart pointed out last week, there is no return policy. We don't get to take things back because we didn't do any part of it to begin with. The former priests, I love this, you've got to say this like Tevya. Do you know the fiddler on the roof? The book of Hebrews is written by a Hebrew. They would talk like Tevye. I can't do it very well. But the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, 
you know this where he just says, on the other hand, on the other hand, I, it hit me the other day as I was reading this and it made me giggle. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If he is permanent, that secures our permanency in him. Right? That's why this is a big deal, that we know that his priesthood never ends because we are under that. And when we come under his priesthood, then our we, we are permanent in that relationship with him. And there's nothing that can be done to separate that. I read this out loud to my daughter yesterday, and she was real excited about two parts of chapter 7. One, it said the word Judah, and she has a cousin named Judah who's just a few months older than her. And so she just kept saying Judah over and over and wanting to know, does that one say Judah? No, that one says Jesus. Okay, well, is that one Judah? Yeah. And then when we got to this part, since he's always lived to make intercession for them, I said, did you know that Jesus is in heaven and he prays and talks to God about you? And she goes, about me? And then she moved on to something else. I don't have a really great story about it. But it was just this really cute, like, no, about me? And if we could all respond that way, like, seriously, God, you're up there, like, making intercession for me? Like, that means that you care about what's going on in my heart and in my day? Yes, he does. Individually, specifically, for each one of us, he lives always to make intercession for them. Will you look in your notebook at page 101? If you did your homework, then you answered question six, where it asks what it means to us that Christ has a permanent priesthood and that he lives to intercede for us. Who can be brave and tell me what you wrote? What does this mean for us? Who's that? Yeah. Cool. Somebody else. Gwen? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, love that. Mature, complete, perfect. Teresa. Yeah. He knows our needs or needs, and he knows us. Therefore, he can 
of that. So what does that mean for our days? If we believe that, if we sit in that and rest in that, that changes how I go about my day. Right? The things that feel all up here, I don't have to be in charge of those things. I don't have to be stressed about those things. I can offer those things. My sacrifice is not something pure and holy, but Jesus is willing to take that because he's already paid the sacrifice, right? And I can offer that junk and say, Jesus, take that. Will you, will you make intercession for that? Will you speak the things that I don't even know? It says the spirit groans for us on our behalf, right? That we don't even have to know what to pray, but if we can be positioned toward Jesus and knowing that he is taking those things to the father, that can just suppress all of that and give us peace and let us be at rest, which is what he wants for us anyway. I love that. Thank you for sharing. To finish out the chapter, it says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Same verses in the message go like this. So now we have a high priest who perfectly fits our needs completely holy, uncompromised by sin, with authority extending as high as God's presence in heaven itself. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins every day before he can get around to us and our sins. He's done it once and for all, offered up himself as the sacrifice. The law appoints as high priests men who are never able to get the job done right. But this intervening command of God, which came later, appoints the son who is absolutely, eternally perfect. We're going to pray now because the only thing I can think of out of that is to just magnify the Lord and remind ourselves by telling him who he is. So I'm going to start, but then I would love for you to join in. And if you want to flip to the back of your notebook and look at those he is pages, you've got a whole list, hopefully, of things that Hebrews has reminded us of things that are true about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So I want you to just throw it out, a word or a phrase. I don't want you to say a three-sentence prayer. You can come back around and take more than one turn if you're really feeling the urge to. That's fine. But let's just magnify the Lord with who he is and who Hebrews says he is. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this morning and for reminding us again of who you are. You are completely holy. You are uncompromised by sin. You are with authority, extending as high as God's presence in heaven itself. You are our high priest, Father, and we thank you. You subdue every enemy. You are superior in all things. 
are obedient because of suffering. We give mercy and grace. You are present in darkness. You are a better hope through whom we draw near to God. You are holy. You are innocent. You are undefiled. You're separated from sinners and you're exalted above the heavens. You are tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The builder of all things. of the power of death. You are our Sabbath rest. Lord God, it is with gratitude that we say all of these things that are true about you, that you keep your word, you are a priest forever, you are our Lord forever, we are secure in you, and you are more than enough. Thank you, Father, for sending your son. Thank you that we get to have this season set aside to celebrate his coming. Help us to keep our eyes on you and to consider you, Jesus, as we go into our days and into our coming weeks. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand and sing?